Hi there, and welcome to the Sanctuary Podcast. Our vision is to find sanctuary in Christ and then to be sanctuary to each other and express sanctuary to this city. And so for us, success is loving well, one person at a time. And if we can help you in any way, please do feel free to reach out, jump onto our website, sanctuarysf.com, and we would love to connect. Anyway, back to the podcast. Hi there. Um, This is uh, a recording that I'm doing on the Monday after the Sunday. Uh, I spoke on the subject of the orthodoxy of charismatic Christianity yesterday, uh, pop up, but unfortunately didn't record. So I am attempting to um, walk through the material um, in more of a podcast feel, I guess, uh, hoping that it will serve you, although it won't be obviously quite the same as the live moment of teaching uh, was yesterday. But the basic idea is I want to speak for a few minutes about, I guess, a bit of a tension that I think many of us feel uh, if you're a Christian. Between, on one hand, the longing to see the power of God that you see throughout the Bible, the overt, supernatural, miraculous stuff that happens. Uh, Longing to see that, but then at the same time, the honest experience many have had of the charismatic church or Pentecostalism or churches which, which tend to go after this kind of stuff, Many of us um, have had a bit of a an unhelpful uh, taste left in our mouth, if we're really honest. A kind of hyper-emotionalism, sometimes a theology that strays into <clears throat> a kind of health, wealth and prosperity, kind of feel, uh, a kind of unreality, a kind of hypeness that marks out churches like this, has meant that I think many of us feel in this tension, we long to see what we see in Scripture, but the churches, the charismaniacs that we've encountered has just have just put us off. And so as a result, I think many of us have just sort of settled for Christianity, meaning we just need to have good doctrine and to think clearly and accurately. And we sort of, we almost overemphasize faithfulness and just the fruit of the Spirit, as important as those are, to the exclusion of ever talking about the gifts of the Spirit. And more of the kind of, I don't know, advancing, victorious, extraordinary moments that we see alongside the faithfulness as well. But I think the problem is that leads to many of us feeling this sense of like, something is missing. There's almost like a, a deadness or a, a dryness to our Christianity and we can be prone to moralism and almost like our beliefs, um, you know, thinking accurately becomes the real goal more than this kind of sense that we see in the Bible of like, what God might God do today? You know, this God who raises the dead and causes water to come out of rocks and parts red seas and you know the god who just does so much stuff in the bible we end up settling for a very different type of christianity and today i want to actually demonstrate the strong argument biblically historically hermeneutically and eschatologically for charismatic or continuationist christianity um, I think this is, and I, I do think this is really important, not not just for the reasons I mentioned, but also because, first of all, 
I really desire for this church plant to be biblical, not shaped culturally, mainly, but shaped biblically, mainly. Like even if we don't see things culturally, what does the Bible say about this? I also think that when we realize that the, the spiritual darkness of the days in which we live, the issue of power is no longer just a theological, luxurious discussion topic that we might disagree with. The issue of needing power to do this Christian life becomes more and more a necessity. And in fact, from in the UK, where I am uh, from originally, uh, over the last 60, 70 years, as the, as the church has become... Um, a smaller thing, and the and the, the nation has become far more secular, and um, you know uh, certainly non-religious, non-church going, um, and more hostile, honestly, to the Christian faith and Christians in general. What that has meant is that across nearly all of the denominational uh, lines, you know, Baptists, Methodists, Anglicans, Presbyterians, you know um, that. If you go to any of those kind of churches in the UK, um, they are nearly all, certainly in Canterbury where I was for 20 years, they're actually functionally charismatic. They're very spirit-filled places in their own different types of way because you suddenly realise that, oh, actually, um, you know, needing the power of the Spirit and the miraculous, extraordinary work of God is 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 not it's not a luxury topic to discuss about whether we debate or not. It's like an essential thing I need in this world just to survive. And I actually think the U.S. probably will become more and more post-Christian um, in the way that Europe has been for a long time. So I think this will become more and more the reality that Christians, no matter what their kind of denominational label, find themselves really grasping for power just to stay in their hearts in a place of love for God and love for the neighbor. I'd also say this is really important because the Bay Area is is actually, in a sense, a very spiritual place already. Most unchurched people would not say they're atheists, statistically. They would say they have some kind of belief in a higher power. So I think often the nervousness in many Christians to not talk about things of the Spirit is unfounded because <laughs> I think most non-Christians um, believe in some kind of reality beyond just rationalism. Certainly they're all the guys I know. They may not have a Christian worldview, but they certainly do believe that things beyond empirical measure can ex- absolutely happen and do happen all the time. And I think that increasingly also, certainly in the Bay Area, there is increasing skepticism about a purely rationalistic kind of, you know, science is the answer to everything view anyway. I really do. I think science as God was a very um, predominating narrative 20 years ago. I think it's much less true for most normal people. You know, they appreciate science, but there's a huge, I think, caution about just uh, assuming that a medical position is always actually true, is it as pure as we are being led to believe, or is there some kind of, I don't know, sort of political motivation behind this scientific uh, situation? 
And I'd also say it's important for us because it's a huge value for us uh, at Sanctuary. And, uh, you know, it's going to keep cropping up. We, as a church plant, um, as a church, and absolutely will be repeatedly referencing things of the Spirit. And so if it's something you're not kind of, you know, settled on and you're nervous about or just don't or think that, that, that it's just sort of crazy... Um, it will be exhausting for you and in a sense for us. So today I want to therefore unashamedly appeal to your mind. I'm, I love telling stories from the Bible, uh, but today I really want to almost lean into more of a lecture style communication to appeal to your mind, our mind, so that you can be as mentally kind of settled and confident that when the extraordinary things of the Spirit happen, You've done the hard work of mentally getting into a place of being at peace about that, and you're not dogged by sort of the voice of, this is all crazy. Um, so I want to do that in a couple of ways. First of all, I want to briefly look at what is called the cessationist argument, which is that the gifts of the Spirit have ceased, which is uh, a, a common belief, I think, in many Christians in America. Uh, they may not even realize that they are cessationists, but the church that they've grown up in may even sort of talk about the Spirit, but there's no active expectation of the work of the Holy Spirit. So they are functional cessationists, i.e. that the gifts have ceased. I'll talk about that for a few moments, and then I'll spend most of my time arguing for why I think the charismatic or the continuationist view that the gifts have continued is a very reasonable position to have intellectually. So first of all, the cessationist argument. I think the three main arguments um, that people who believe the gifts have ceased are these. The first of them is you could call it the prophecy argument. And I think the heart of why people take this is is normally excellent. It's it's basically the logic is this, is that if you assume in the Old Testament and in the New, anything called prophecy is always infallible divine revelation, then it logically uh, follows that if you believe that prophecy is still happening today, I one of the gifts of the Spirit, that people will start to want to say their prophecy, their vision is equal to the canon of Scripture. And I think many Christians have actually have functionally met many charismatic Christians who may not, who may not uh, consciously think that, but they so elevate their uh, somewhat subjective internal experience that it feels like they are effectively governed more by prophecy or in their view you know what they believe has happened this sort of somewhat subjective experience is almost trumping it's uh, the the uh, the, um, the the scripture itself now what i would say is this is I believe that just as many English words have actually more than one nuance behind them. So the English word for love in Greek, as you probably know, there's four different meanings of word for the word love. And I think the word prophecy is similar. I think you can hold a kind of capital P position of, of prophecy that, you know, the Bible is the ultimate prophecy. It's the ultimate authority. But I still hold a kind of belief in the active gift of prophecy now, but the prophecy has a small p element to it. It is not of the same caliber or directional weight as the scripture, but it is still, and in that sense, isn't 
uh, always, um, you know, infallible divine revelation, but it is still incredibly real. So I don't think that you necessarily have to say we disregard the reality of the gifts of spirit, particularly prophecy, because otherwise you have to um, automatically assume the Bible will be added to. I don't think that is a is logically as coherent as some people would say. The second argument is that because we see a lot of, I don't know, lower grade uh, miraculous moments nowadays, people think that, well, it, we, we should just be honest that the gifts of the Spirit are just not real today. When Jesus was here and the disciples were here, of course, they healed all the time in almost like great perfect power. But we all, let's be honest, we don't really ever see that right. So let's just stop pretending and be real. Well, a few things I would say is, first of all, that's classically a very Western mindset. Um, if you go to the rest of the world, the East or the South, you generally will often see huge amounts of overt, supernatural, miraculous, extraordinary things happening. It is, for whatever reason, a bit of a disease of the West. And I think sometimes we are a little arrogant that we judge the entire world from our own little place, which is often the West. And I think... Uh, a kind of global humility is really essential. I'd also say that even Jesus himself at times was not able to heal and do miraculous things in equal measure, in equal place. You know, Jesus, it says, couldn't do many miracles in his hometown because of the lack of faith. And I'd also say that there is a kind of humility argument that, yes, it's true that for most of us, we don't see the same measure of power. But in the same way, we also probably would say we're not as good leaders as most people in the New Testament, or as good teachers, or as good church planters. We're probably not as good prayers. We're probably not as thorough in our forgiveness, or our love for the poor, or our giving generously. But that doesn't mean we therefore say all those things are not available for us. <laughs> we just we just come with humility and say, man, I, I want to grow in each of these areas, including the miraculous. I don't think it's logically coherent to say because we don't see them readily in the West, therefore they, they're not available today. I think all of the picture of uh, the, the amazing picture we see in the New Testament is meant to lead us, to provoke us, to say, man, I want more of all these things, Lord. And the third argument that cessationists bring is uh, the perfect appearing argument. In 1 Corinthians 13, Paul says, uh, love never ends. As for prophecies, they will pass away. As for tongues, they'll cease. As for knowledge, it will pass away. For we know in part, we prophesy in part. But when the perfect comes, the partial will pass away. When I was a child, I spoke like a child. I thought like a child. I reasoned like a child. But when I became a man, I gave up childish ways. For now we see in a mirror dimly, but then face to face. Now I know in part, and then I shall know fully, even as I have been fully known. So Paul here, he's basically saying that um, when this perfect appears, or completeness in some translations, then the need for the gifts of the Spirit will no longer be here. That the gifts of the Spirit are for an age of, to quote Paul, imperfection, infancy, blurred vision and partial knowledge. But the logic of Paul is that when the perfect comes, these things will no longer be needed. It says... They will pass away. The partial will pass away. When the perfect comes, the partial will pass away. So the million-dollar question is, is the perfect here? Has it come? 
Cessationists would say, yes, he's talking about the Bible. The perfect has come. But those traits of sort of spiritual infancy and imperfection and blurred vision and partial knowledge, therefore they should have gone. They should have passed away. It says when the perfect comes, they will pass away. They haven't passed away at all. That perfectly describes me as a Christian. I am like an infant. I see blurrily. I have partial knowledge. Uh, And the reason is, is because the perfect, the vast majority of scholars would agree, is not talking about the coming of the Bible. It is talking about a future event, about the return of Christ. When he comes, we will finally uh, experience wonderful perfection, freedom from infancy, perfect vision and perfect knowledge Um, and in the meantime my goodness we certainly do need those spiritual gifts so i i think that the cessationist argument is often coming from a good heart uh, a heart to protect the bible but i i think we can have our cake and eat it i really do i think we can adore the word prize the word uh you know assert the authority of scripture but also absolutely expect and pursue incredible charismatic life so let's walk through i think four main arguments for charismatic christianity and the first of them is a biblical one the bible itself i'll spend probably more time on this than the other three to quote andrew wilson and just to say andrew wilson has written a book called the spirit uh, and sacrament which much of this talk has come from uh it's really worth buying if you haven't got it <clears throat> and he says the early church was a charismatic community he's talking about the book of acts here of that there can be no doubt from the day of pentecost onwards the book of acts is a story of spirit baptism speaking in other languages or tongues prophesying healing casting out demons angelic encounters miraculous prison breaks visions dreams evangelistic preaching builders buildings shaking the um the dead being supernaturally brought to life and on occasion the living being supernaturally brought to death boldness in the face of persecution joy and even teleportation so the book of acts is just unashamedly uh extraordinarily charismatic i filled with the charisma which is the gifts of the holy spirit they're everywhere and then we see also in the epistles which are the epistles means the letters the the, the letters were written mainly by paul and peter to the churches that sprung up out of this age in this in that is described in the book of acts and what you see is no hint in these letters that they should expect anything other than an ongoing extraordinary charismatic experience so let me just demonstrate that paul says to the church in rome we have different gifts this is in chapter 12 verse 6 we have different gifts or charismata according to the grace given to each of us if your gift is prophesying then prophesy in accordance then with your faith to the church in Galatia in chapter 3, he says, So I ask again, does God give you his Holy Spirit, his Spirit, and work miracles among you by works of the law or by your believing what you heard? He says, Paul writes to the church in Ephesus, um, says, Don't get drunk on wine, which leads to debauchery. Instead, be filled with the Spirit, speaking to one another with psalms, hymns, and songs from the Holy Spirit. To the church in Thessalonica, in chapter 5, Paul says, Don't quench the Spirit. Don't treat prophecies with contempt, but test them all. Paul says to Timothy, in chapter 1 of 1 Timothy, he says, Timothy, my son, I'm giving you this command in keeping with the prophecies once made about you. In Hebrews, chapter 2, it says, How shall we escape if we ignore so great a salvation? This salvation, which was first encountered by the Lord, 
sorry, announced by the Lord, confirmed to us by those who heard him. God also testified to it by signs, wonders, various miracles, and by gifts of the Holy Spirit distributed according to his will. And in the book of James, it just says, Is anyone among you sick? Let them call the elders of the church to pray over them. Anoint them with oil in the name of the Lord, and the prayer offered in faith will make the sick person well. In addition to the gifts of the Spirit, we should not uh, overlook the centrality of the emphasis in the New Testament on the gift, capital G, of the Holy Spirit as a person himself. So Paul writes, for example, in Romans chapter 8, to the church in Rome that he's never met, assuming that they will understand and identify with this idea of being adopted by the Holy Spirit that enables us to cry out, Abba, Father, with real emotion. He's just like, well, that's what it is to be a believer, right? I haven't met you, but I just know that's going to be your experience. It's a thoroughly charismatic kind of deal. Paul, who was brainy enough to write Romans, also raised the dead. Again, Andrew Wilson says the spirit for Paul is at the center of Christian discipleship. Repeatedly, where modern evangelicals might be inclined to point people first to the Bible or the gospel, pray in the Bible, rejoice in the gospel, be led by the Bible, find assurance in the gospel, experience God's love through the Bible, keep in step with the gospel, etc. Paul points people first to the spirit. The chief actor in the sanctification of the believer is not a message, but a messenger, a person who can be grieved or honoured, not just a word that can be rejected or believed. The third person of the Trinity for Paul was a dynamic, experienced reality. In addition, the biblical evidence is very strong with regards the shift from even the Old Testament, but certainly other religions, which seem to, um, the, the agenda of miraculous stuff happening nearly always in the Old Testament and other religions was to point to the person who did the miracle, a validation of their power. You know, Moses before Pharaoh, he does miraculous powers to validate who he was. The shift you then see in the New Testament is just so many examples where unknown people, ordinary unnamed people, do extraordinary supernatural things. The spiritual gifts are evident and we don't even know their names. It's like something's happened in this age where now what was in drips in the Old Testament, now that the, the faucets have been turned on full blast and there's this outpouring of the Spirit of God to the point where he can't, we can't even keep up with the names. It's a, it's a, it's a new age. For example, most of the 120 in Acts chapter 2 who speak in unlearned languages or tongues, we don't know most of their names. We know in Acts 19, Philip has four daughters, but we don't know their names. But we're told that they prophesy again and again uh, in Acts 21. So the unnamed people suddenly are doing miraculous things, supernatural things, left, right and centre. We don't even know their names because it's a new age. I also would want to say... It's not just that God gives gifts to those who are unnamed. Can I be a little bit provoking? He even gives them to people who are really sinful. (gasps) What, Tom? Yeah, it's true. Look at the book of Corinthians is the most clear example. This church was divided on almost anything and everything. They were into rhetoric, not humble, cross-centeredness. They were incest-tolerating. 
They were suing each other. There was drunkenness at communion. It was just chaos. But Paul says to them in 1 Corinthians chapter 1, verse 7, you are not lacking any gift, any supernatural gift. Between the amongst of you, if you count you all together, between you all, you are literally, you've got everything. But you're a mess in terms of your holiness. Also, what you see is a consistent, just cover to cover, talking in the Bible about real, actual, spiritual beings. And these are not metaphors for struggle, but they appear in almost every book of the Bible, whether we call them angels or the sons of God or archangels, cherubim, seraphim, or Satan, the devil, demons, you know, dominions, rulers, authorities, spiritual forces of evil. So in some, the New Testament was overtly and consistently a charismatic thing. And there's no suggestion that miracles gradually decreased over time. In fact, if anything, I think it's true to say, for example, at the end of Acts, which was probably written around AD 60, when Paul, you know, he's uh, he's washed up on an island and he ends up surviving a, a deadly snake bite, then he heals a guy of dysentery, and then he heals the entire island. That's right near the end of Paul's ministry. And you could argue that it, you know, it's certainly not that you know the miraculous is dying out. Um, it's actually increasing. Uh, you know that was that was around AD sixty. The beginning of the Book of Acts is probably around AD thirty. So it is. There's no evidence I don't believe from the Bible that the gifts of the Spirit were dying out. I think you could say they were increasing. I just want to say this that you know it's really crucial as Christians we realize that people who are not believers are really often far more comfortable and expectant of the supernatural for unexplainable, miraculous, amazing things to happen. Just someone someone close to me recently who is an extremely intellectually brilliant person has recently um, come to believe in Jesus as, as a resurrected man. And he ultimately was having dreams and vision extraordinary dreams and visions and ultimately even when his final moment came when he kind of really realized he he said it's not a, it's not a rational thing it's something i can't fully explain so my goodness do christians need to understand we must not throw the baby out with the bathwater in an attempt to not be crazy of course this is our birthright. This is central to being, in some ways, those who dare to say we represent Christ on this earth. If we say that, then we have to understand it is absolutely central that we are a people who are expecting of the gifts of the Spirit and the gift of the Spirit to be central. Okay, moving on more briefly, the historic argument. In essence, it's very simple. It's this, when you think about the period of time, which is classically known as the early church fathers, it, the, the point is, is we often think of sort of slightly dusty old men writing, you know, people like Irenaeus and Eusebius and Tertullian and obviously Augustine, and we tend to think of them as very, uh, you know, very clever, but ultimately, of course, they weren't remotely sort of charismatic. Well, actually, if you read the stuff... Um, it's evident again and again that the vast majority of the great early church fathers who were hugely influential in the centuries after uh, the first century, who have shaped so much of our thinking, were all charismatic. And 
very passionate charismatics. For example, Justin Martyr in AD 60, probably the first great Christian apologist, he said, for the, the prophetic gifts remain with us even to the present time. Irenaeus in AD 180, he says, for some do truly drive out devils. They see visions and they utter prophetic expressions. Eusebius says various gifts remained among those who were worthy even until that time. Tertullian of Carthage in AD 208 says, Now all these spiritual gifts, these signs, are forthcoming from my side without any difficulty. And they too, with the rules and dispensations and the instructions of the Creator. Oregon in 248 said, Especially in those things that relate to Christ and of power, because of the signs and wonders which we must believe to have been performed, both on many grounds, and on the traces of them are still preserved among those who regulate their lives by the precepts of the gospel. Basil the Great, Cyril of Jerusalem, even Augustine, who obviously wrote City of God, which some would say was the most influential book in Europe for a thousand years. He wrote an entire chapter on the continuation of miracles, indignant that some were arguing that they had ceased with the apostles. Thirdly, the hermeneutical argument. The principle, hermeneutics is basically the principle of how do you read and understand the Bible. It's the good practice of um, the methodology around this. And the principle that explicit New Testament instructions to Christians should be followed unless there's a very clear reason from the context that they should be not. It's called the presumption of obedience. And it's basically that if you are a Christ follower, your MO is to actually believe that the apostolic commands in the New Testament are absolutely relevant to your life right now. That's kind of the whole point. If you don't believe that, you're either not a Christian or a liberal Christian who picks and chooses the Bible. But if you would say, no, I want to be an evangelical, orthodox Christian, whatever word you uh, take, which basically believes in the authority of Scripture, the very ancient hermeneutical practice of the presumption of obedience, which is I presume, my, my, my natural default is to believe that the words that Jesus said and the apostles who wrote uh, the rest of the New Testament, that, that this canon of Scripture is authoritative in my life with regards how I approach my marriage, my money, everything. If you take that position, then what I would say is um, you have to have a very good reason why you would be bold enough to suggest that as a Christian you no longer should obey the apostolic commands that are everywhere and the stories that should lead to inspiration with regards the pursuing of the spiritual gifts. For example, in 1 Corinthians, Paul says, zealously desire spiritual gifts, zealously desire the greater gifts, zealously to desire to prophecy, and do not speak in tongues. Sorry, do not forbid speaking in tongues. The burden of proof should always be on the person who said we don't have to obey an apostolic instruction rather than on the person who says we do. Does that make sense? So it's not like a kind of, it's, we can sometimes think the d debate between cessationists and continuationists or charismatics is kind of like this um, zero-sum thing. But I don't think it is. I think there is so much explicit apostolic command to the Christ follower to pursue, to seek, to desire, to expect these things. <laughs> like you have to, you can choose to say, I don't believe these things, but just, I'm just saying you're a brave person because I think you need to have a really 
clear biblical reason why you're choosing to say, no, this bit of the Bible isn't relevant to me anymore. And it's more than just being open to these things. I, I do get frustrated when people are like, oh, we're open to the Spirit. That is not the mindset that Paul had. And it's not the mindset I don't think a Christian should have. When we say zealously desire, it's the language of, honestly, a husband and a wife. It's like lover language. You know, if I said I'm, I'm open, I'm open to having time with my wife. I think she, I think I'd be in trouble. <laughs> You know, as a husband, I, I zealously desire to be with my wife. This is the language that Paul says we should have about the messenger, capital M, about the Spirit of God and the gifts that he loves to bring. We need to, we need to uh, seek them earnestly. There is a strong hermeneutical uh, argument, I think, that all Christians should feel a, uh, yeah, a kind of, a sober seriousness to the strength of Paul Pauline argument particularly that this this part of the Christian life is absolutely central and we can't pick and choose. The final argument, the fourth one, is the eschatological one. Now the word es- eschatology is a long word, but it basically means sort of words and thoughts about the end times. And it's actually crucial. It sounds a little bit kind of um I don't know, eccentric or something as an, as an idea. But having an accurate eschatology is a huge, huge part of health as a Christ follower. In fact, I don't think you can understand really the New Testament, all the writers, without understanding that they were governed hugely in their present day decisions and mindsets and behaviors because of a very powerful, united, compelling picture of the future the world to come. You see, if you know the future is going to be a certain way, that when you die or Christ returns, you're going to face him and he's going to go through your life and reward and celebrate and cheer you on for the things you did well and also talk about the things that, you know, perhaps weren't right and you think about the world to come and that Christ says he's going to make all things new. And we're going to live in, if you're a Christ follower, live in a resurrected body on a resurrected earth with a resurrected Christ. That eschatological picture radically impacts how you live in the present. It really does. You know, if you you don't believe that and you just think everything now is just a kind of, um, I don't know, a kind of meaningless moment, you will live very differently. So the gifts of the Spirit are characteristic of this entire age that's known in the Bible as the last days. It's that they make more sense if you have an eschatology that these are actually the very last days. Uh, you know, you could think of this area, era that we're in now as this time between the Pentecost, when the Spirit fell first in power um, after Jesus' ascension, and parousia, which means the return of Christ. So what it's saying is these last days between Christ's ascension and his return are seen in the Bible as both periods of sinfulness and difficulty in the world, but also when the Holy Spirit will be poured out on all flesh and and they will prophesy and, and have visions and dream dreams. It makes so much more sense of why 
The gifts of the Spirit are so essential and so talked about and so crucial in the New Testament and for us today. If you understand these are the last days, which the Bible says are going to be tough and difficult and dark. However, in that time, there is incredible provision from heaven itself, from the Holy Spirit. If you don't think of that, then it becomes less of an issue. But when you understand, oh no, this is true, this is my experience, then it makes so much more sense. For example, in Acts chapter 2, it says, quoting Joel, in the last days, God says, I will pour out my spirit on all people. In 1 Corinthians chapter 1, it says, you're not lacking in any gift as you wait for the revealing of the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ. Ephesians 5 says, because the days are evil, be filled with the spirit, speaking to one another with psalms, hymns and songs from the spirit. Romans 12 says, don't be conformed to the pattern of this world. But instead, you know, if you have different gifts according to the grace given to us, use them. If, it's, if your gift is prophesying, then prophesy in accordance with your faith. The gifts of the Spirit make so much more sense if you understand the eschatological days in which we live. My final point I'll say is this. One way of thinking of this is that spiritual gifts are like manna, you know, that that when the people of God were in the wilderness, which is a major metaphor for this period of time, as Christians we're living, you know, the the people of God have been set free from sin and slavery, and they were meant to have a quick journey through the desert to the promised land. But because of their own sinfulness, it ended up being a protracted time. But in that wilderness time, God gave them manna. He gave them spiritual nourishment. And as Christians, you know, we are in a wilderness time. This time between now and when Christ returns, of course, there's great moments that feel non-wildernessy, but the overarching feel of life uh, before Christ returns is very much like that. And the spiritual gifts are like manna. They are crucial. Again, Andrew says this, Andrew Wilson, we too like Israel, are on a slow and difficult pilgrimage from past rescue to future rest. We have been set free from slavery to sin and death, but we await the day when we can settle in our true homeland. In the past, we did not need or use spiritual gifts because the Spirit had not yet been poured out. And in the new creation, we will not need to to because what is mortal would have been swallowed up by what is life. No Christian on finally reaching the new creation, will be pursuing gift of prophecy or languages of healing, will be too busy worshipping the one to whom all prophecy, language and healing points. But in the meantime, since the journey is long, God provides us with heavenly presence, gifts, which are themselves manifestations of his heavenly presence to unite us, to make us strong and to sustain us on our desert travels. I was uh, just a few weeks ago at a prayer event in... uh, uh, Visalia in the Central Valley of California and honestly I went last minute but I went down and it, you know it's been a, a bit of a, a difficult season in some ways as it has been for many of us and um, I just went pretty tired um, but on the Saturday I'll never forget over the few hours I was there many friends came up and just said hey Tom great to see you can I can I pray for you and I'm not exaggerating to say that all of them and I think it was 11 or 12 All of them didn't just pray for me. They ended up prophesying over me, 
Words of encouragement. 1 Corinthians 14 says that the gift of prophecy is for the encouragement, consolation, and the upbuilding of God's people. And as as these words came, it was like a power, not of this world. These normal people just speaking words of encouragement and hope and love. These weren't just, this wasn't just wishful thinking. Something was happening in my inner being that you couldn't see with the human eye, but my goodness, was absolutely real. And I left that time feeling radically different. I, I, I literally felt so different. Now, that's just one example, but this is why, as a church, we are giving ourselves to the establishing of sanctuary in the heart of the bay. Because, man, God has given us a blueprint that is so crucial and has been, you know, contested. Many have given up on this kind of Christianity because they've just known charismaniacs who have twisted um, some of these emphases into self-serving and really unhelpful and just sinful things. But I want us to not throw the baby out with the bathwater. I want us to be a people, and I believe God wants us to be a people, who absolutely prize the word of God, delight in it as a honey that we just drink. But also to be a people who go, well, the Holy Spirit is the one who wrote the Bible and he's alive and well and a person. And Jesus said, it's better that I go so that he can come. And if Jesus was into him that much, how much how much more do we need to be? And how much do we need to be absolutely fully reliant and expecting that this age in which we live simply does not make sense, simply is not possible to live through with any sense of overcoming spirit unless we are those who absolutely are a people who are eagerly desiring all of the spiritual gifts that God has for us. And I believe, friends, you know, I believe when we pray more, Lord, more of your presence, more of your gifts, more of your equipping, yes, for our own upbuilding and strengthening, but that way we can bless our neighborhoods with power and we can bless them with the people who are bright and are shining in a, in a crooked and depraved time, but we can be those who have a strength to listen well and to forgive well and to bless those who persecute us and to turn the other cheek and to forgive 70 times 7. To live well with integrity is not something any of us can do outside of a power that raised Christ from the dead. And friends, the great news is, is that all the pressure of this is on our God. We just say, Father, you said it. We're, we're waiting, we're expecting, as we pray, we're expecting to hear you. We're just children, we're not impressive. We're putting the weight of clarity and power on you to come to us and to equip us to do something we can never do. And when we're in that place, our God, he never fails to turn up and to help us and to equip us.